Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you all out there in TV land as well, watching us virtually. Uh, wow, it's really good to see this many people out. This is exciting. Um, and, that, and the kids left too, so this is awesome. Hey, Dr. Joe, how you doing? You ready for this? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> Um, when, when John first asked me, um, asked us, um, the elders, if we'd take this sermon, you know, I was, he was in the process of moving. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and do this. And John was slick. He, he waited to the very end after I volunteered to let me know what the scripture was going to be. Basically, all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And there's a lot. If you look at chapter, chapter 7, there's a lot of verses. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it was a challenge, but I thank God that um, I'm able to come up here and, and just share what God has laid on my heart with you. Um, this morning, what's basically going to happen is I'm not going to read all the scripture. It took eight, well, almost nine minutes for me to read through that. I'm like, nah, I'm not doing that. Uh, so um, Tim is going to be flashing the scriptures up there as I go through, and I think you'll get a grasp of what's going on. So um, let me make sure I'm set here, and then we'll start, okay? Um, all right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. So this morning, um, we're going to talk about Stephen, the man, and Stephen, the message, okay? The man that he was in character, and then Stephen, the message that he brought as that man of character. So um, first thing I was thinking about is like each week as we come together as a church family in this room, we all enter with different issues swirling about in our lives. We all have all kinds of things going on in our lives right now. This week, some of us face health issues. I know many of you here who have, including myself. We had folks in our church that had tests and procedures, emergency room visits, bouts with sickness. Some of you had work situations that you know, come Monday, is gonna be right there waiting for you. Okay. Others have relationship conflicts, marital misunderstandings, and unruly children. Then there's the financial side of things, loss of jobs, loss of wages, which for some this past year was particularly painful. Then there's the general culture and the moral and ethical nosedive that's going on all around us. We can't escape that. That's, it's there. It's in our face. If you start considering all these things, you might say to yourself, why, why shouldn't I be depressed? Why shouldn't I be downtrodden? Okay. Um, under the circumstances, you would do that. But here's the deal. We are called to live. We are called to live under and above the circumstances. Okay. As Christian followers of Christ, we're called to live above, to live beyond and to pursue righteousness, live beyond those circumstances. So how do we live beyond the circumstances? Okay, um, let me make this main point first. If we ask, if we trust, God will give us the character to live beyond. He will give us godly character like that of Stephen so that we will be courageous witnesses for Jesus Christ. Leave the results to him. Okay, don't stress yourself. Do what's up to you to do. Leave the results to him. Whether you lo we lose our lives as martyrs or whether God protects us, we will, like Stephen, wear 
the victor's crown. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, okay? And he left us an example of godly, courageous witness. As Christians, we believe that at the end of life, Stephen attained his, his name. He attained the victor's crown because of this godly character which was instilled in him, okay? So first thing we're going to do, we're going to learn about Stephen is that he was a man of godly character. In the first seven verses of chapter 6, Stephen was picked as one of the seven men to help distribute food to the Hellenistic widows in a fair manner, okay? Up to this point, our focus in the book of Acts has been on the 12 and specifically upon Peter and John. But now there's a change. Stephen now becomes the main subject for the remainder of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And in this next major section of Acts, Luke's narrated three different events in the life and ministry of the early church. These events were the martyrdom of Stephen, the ministry of Philip, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Luke's presentation of these events was primarily biographical. In fact, he began his account of each event in the name of its major character, like you see now. So in our text this morning, we see Stephen preaching to the Hellenistic Jews. Because of his preaching about Jesus' destruction of the temple and his changing the customs of Moses, he was brought before trial, before the, tra- before the Sanhedrin. My mouth is already getting dry. Oh, my goodness. Before the death of Stephen, the oppositions of the Jews had been limited to threats and imprisonment, verbal abuse, and finally to the imprisonment and beating. But now it's come out with a raging kind of madness. These guys are losing their minds over what's happening. Stephen preaching this Christ. Um, and And it results in the execution of Stephen by stoning. Stephen's death is very significant especially when we understand the character of this man. So let's look at the, what the Bible says about him, which is, the only, which is only found in Acts chapter 6 and 7. That's the only place we see Stephen. But he takes up a good portion. I mean, he takes up all of 6 in chapter 7. Despite what we hear and see in our world on a regular basis, character, I say it, character does count. Our character counts. It does matter. How we live affects the world in which we live. Evangelism is primarily a matter of character and content. It's not just what you say. It's what you are. It's not just what we say, brothers and sisters. It's what we are. Character It's what we are. What you, what you are gives you a platform for what you say. We often fail to realize how crucial to the purpose of God is the behavior of his people, okay? As God's children, we are to live our lives, we are to live lives, rather, of character. And Stephen was a great example to all of us. So let's read uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 3 to 5 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, 
a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that last part. It wasn't just full of faith. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man of good reputation. His integrity and reputation were blameless, not only among the church, but also in the eyes of the unbelieving world. Five inequalities and in, in one outward quality show Stephen to be a man of godly character. Five inner, one outer, and I'm going to share them with you briefly. He was full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? This was a requirement that the apostles laid down for the seven men who were to serve the tables. We see this in verse 3 of chapter 6. They had to, say, they have to have a good reputation, specifically of being full of the Holy Spirit. This did not refer to an ecstatic or blissful experience. That's not what we're talking about when we say being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it is a daily walking under the control of the Holy Spirit that had to continue for a long enough time to produce the evidence that you, were, that you had the fruit, that you bore the fruit of the Spirit. It was a consistency in living the godly walk. This quality is implied in Stephen chapter 6, verses 10, where it states that his opponents could not cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. As Jesus had told his disciples when they, when they would be delivered up before the synagogues and rulers, the Holy Spirit would teach them in that very hour what they needed to say. I know many of you, if not most of you here, have experienced that. When that time came for you to say something, for you to minister to a brother or sister, for you to minister to a family member, a lost one, you had no clue what you were going to say. But then the Spirit of God filled you, and out of nowhere, you're amazed at your own self, right? These things come out of your mouth that had been hidden in your heart. That's what we're talking about here, okay? So Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit in his defense before the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin and it's specifically stated in uh, verses 55, chapter 7. He was full of wisdom. This was the second requirement for the men who served tables. It is, also, it is also seen in Stephen, verse 10. The Greek word wisdom is used for, I'm sorry, the Greek word for wisdom is used only four times in Acts. Twice of Stephen and twice in his message before the Sanhedrin in verses uh, 10 and 22 of uh, chapter 7. Proverbs states, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs, um, Proverbs 9.10. Then the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, we know this one, is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Thus, wisdom comes from knowing God. And then scripture is what reveals God's wisdom to us. God's wisdom is summed up in Christ Jesus on the cross. To those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness, Scripture tells us. But to those who have been called to God, Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the ultimate wisdom of God for our salvation. To be people of wisdom, we must grow in our understanding of the cross of Christ where human pride is humbled and God's grace, God's grace is exalted. Our pride is humbled and God is exalted. Stephen was faithful. He was full of faith, rather. 
Stephen is described in 6.5 as being full of faith, referring to his faith in God. Stephen's sermon in chapter 7 shows us that he believed in a sovereign God who called Abraham out of a pagan country and through his covenant dealing with Abraham and his descendants brought Jesus, the righteous one, to save his people in spite of the history of rebellion. We've heard this, the history of the rebellion of Israel. God is sovereign even in the matter of the cross of Christ. It wasn't an accident that Christ went to the cross. It was the sovereignty of God. You can only be full of faith if you believe in a sovereign God who uses even the wicked deeds of people to accomplish his personal purposes, his eternal, rather, purposes. How could we trust a God who did not work all things for the counsel of his will? Think about it. All things work for the counsel of his will. We may not understand it. We may not see the final outcome. But there's a faith in knowing. There's a a hope in knowing that all things are going to work for the good for us, to the counsel of his will. Stephen was full of grace. The same thing is said of Jesus Christ, who was full of grace and truth. Jesus was God's grace personified. With regards to Stephen, the phrase implies that he had a personal understanding and experience of God's grace as revealed on the cross of Christ. He knew that salvation is not by our works of righteousness, but rather by the undeserved favor of God. Salvation came from the undeserved favor of God, shown to us while we were yet sinners. We see this in Romans 5 and Titus 3 and in Romans 11, 6. Stephen's Jewish opponents boasted of their observance of the law. These guys boasted, okay, Although, as we will see, they were blind to their own violations of it. But Stephen boasted of the grace of God freely bestowed on an undeserving sinner such as he, such as we. A person who understands and lives God's grace as seen on the cross also becomes a person who shows grace to others. It is when we understand the grace, the amount, the the magnitude of the grace that God gave us, oh, we, we become so less critical of each other. We should. We should show grace because we've been shown much, much, much grace. Much grace. Um, I hate going off track because then I lose my way. <laughs> um, the person who understands and lives God's grace as seen on the cross also becomes a person who shows grace to others. An inward experience of grace flows outward into the gracious spirit towards others. Stephen's being full of grace means that he was, grac- he was a gracious man. That was one of his qualities. He did not curse his persecutors as they threw stones and crushed his bones, but rather he blessed them by saying, by praying, Lord, do not hold this against them. Lord, bring them into the fold anyway. Don't hold this against them. The most effective witness, witnesses have a clear understanding of the gospel of grace, of God's grace, 
and they are gracious towards others, even to those who are rude, those who are offensive, those who are wanting to do you harm. You're gracious to them. Uh, what an, it's totally opposite, totally opposite of what we see, of what we hear in this world, and of what pursues our own hearts, right? We want to fight back. We want to be judged and executioner, don't we? It's, it's in us to do that. Stephen was full of power. God gave Stephen the ability to perform great wonders and signs among the people. Whether his power came upon him after the apostles laid hands on him or before, we, we aren't told, okay? Except for the 12 apostles, only Stephen and Philip and Barnabas in the early church were reported to have performed miracles. They were the only three. God can do miracles anytime he pleases. I believe God still does miracles. I really do. I've seen it. I've been, <laughs> I've been a recipient of it. I believe God does miracles. And, he should, and we should not limit him to our restrictive theology or little faith. But the biblical evidence is the gift of performing miracles regularly was limited to the transitional period for the purpose, to this transitional period, for the purpose of confirm, confirming the testimony of the apostles. So basically what, what I'm saying here is, God, all these miracles were happening in this specific time for God to confirm and affirm the apostles as they were going out and starting the church. As they were going out and spreading the gospel, God was providing actual, actual witnesses for this spreading of God's gospel, that God does miracles, okay? Um, God can do miracles. Wait a minute, see, I did that. As I know you've pre previously heard, set up here, God's mighty power is shown in our lives when we patiently and joyfully endure trials. Not just when we are miraculously delivered from them. Okay, that's exciting. That feels great. But when, when unbelievers see us going through trials with joy and thanksgiving, it provides a platform for a powerful verbal witness. Okay? So we're not always going to be relieved, so to say, by God of these trials and tribulations, but when we go through them, trusting, knowing that God is still sovereign and people see this witness, this character, we are maintaining the character of a godly Christian. We're not, we're not being broken down. We're not cursing God. We're not angry. We're not bitter. That's the witness that we have. That's the character that we're called to have. Thus, Stephen's inner qualities, being full of the Spirit, Wisdom, faith, grace, and power show his godly character. Now, one outward quality it mentions is his angelic countenance. What is that, angelic countenance? Um, some of you, have, I've seen some of you with some angelic countenance. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that. Okay. I'm not sure what, what the face of an angel looks like. I mean, I've read and I can guesstimate, you know. But Stephen had such a countenance as he stood before the council it, it is presumed that Luke got his report from Paul, who was, who was there. 
whether it was a radiant glow like the shining of Moses when he came down from the mountain or a serene calmness, we can't say. But his face was, it wasn't normal. His countenance wasn't normal. One commentator says this, the description is of a person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence. A person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence. Think on that. Stephen's godly character was the foundation for his courageous witness. Okay? Because of Stephen's godly character, he was able and powerfully and courageously to preach to these Jews from the synagogue of what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. The freedmen were descendants of Jewish slaves captured by Pompey in 63 BC, and then they were taken to Rome. When they were later expelled from Rome, some went to Jerusalem and formed a synagogue there. Scholars are divided over how many synagogues are presented in, in, in uh, verse 9, but probably there were more than two. There were two. The freedmen, which were Cyrenians and Alexandrians on one hand, and the men of Cilicia and Asia on the other. Paul was from Cilicia, a province in southern Asia Minor, and that and may have been one of the debaters, the debaters who could not cope with what Stephen was preaching. Okay, and we've heard say he probably was the one that egged him to egg the martyr. Let's kill this guy. He couldn't. He couldn't stand it. So Paul was there. So thus Stephen shows up as the god that godly. Sorry. So thus Stephen shows us that godly character is the basis of courageous witness. God, godly courageous witness must have, must leave the results up to God. Okay? It's all God's. We can't forget that. Forget your motivations. Forget what you, 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 what you want the result to be. Okay? If you are to leave, live godly, you must remember God is the author of the results. God often works in ways that confounds our logic. To sacrifice a man of Stephen's caliber after such a short ministry seems, it seems illogical to us. Here's Stephen, a powerful man, and then God takes him away. That, 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 that doesn't seem right, right? To allow a scoundrel like Caiaphas to rule as high priest over the Jews for 18 years, it, that just seems wrong. Why not strike the wicked man dead and allow Stephen and the other godly men to have long and fruitful ministries? God works in mysterious ways. We've heard that said. His wonders to perform. God works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. That's a line from a song. Through Stephen's death, Paul got saved. Think about it. God used the death of Stephen to serve, save rather, the apostle Paul. But first the church was scattered through persecution resulting in more widespread witnesses. Okay? Whether the godly die young by violent deaths and the wicked live long and prosper, is God not sovereign? That's his business. He's the sovereign God. 
Our business is to be faithful to his great commission and leave the results to God. So, what was the message of Stephen? What was, what was Stephen telling us in this long dissertation, this long sermon? And it was. As we look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, which has been called Stephen's defense, no one can say whether Stephen sensed that he was about to be stoned to death when he delivered this message before the Sanhedrin. But one thing was sure. This man was fully, he was focused in spirit. His mind was wonderfully concentrated. I mean, you can see that as you're reading through this. He's, he doesn't have a book in front of him. He's spitting this out from his heart, from his mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I'm, as I'm studying this and I'm, and I'm reading this, knowing that Stephen's defense right there is the Spirit of God flowing through him, it was an encouragement to me. It really, really was. It boosted my soul. It is the longest sermon in Acts. And so the Holy Spirit thought it to be important enough for Luke to record it to the extent that he did. Stephen was charged with speaking against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law and the customs handed down by Moses. We see that in verse 11, 13, and 14 of chapter 6. While overall his message shows the charges to be false, it is more a sermon that traces God's historical, historical dealings with Israel. Israel's history of rebellion against God and a climax that indicts his hearers of, every, of the very charges that they were bringing against him. They were guilty of rejecting Moses and the law, and even worse, they had just killed the righteous one whom God has sent for their salvation. Thus, the overall theme was, Stephen's sermon points us to the, to, to the sovereign, abundant grace of God toward rebellious sinners, but also to the danger of hardening our hearts against God's grace. The abundance of God's grace, but then being careful not to harden our hearts against God's grace, not to take God's grace for granted. Stephen's message focuses on three issues, the patriarchal periods, Moses and the law, the tabernacle and the temple. The conclusion in verses in 751 and 53 is a skating. I mean, he slams these guys. A skating denunciation of the Sanhedrin who were following in the rebellious patterns of their forefathers. First, we will look at the explanation of Stephen's message and then its application for us. Rather than working through the message in detail, like I said earlier, which would take, I mean, it would take too much time, I want to show you three dominant themes that are woven through it, okay? The first one, Israel's history reveals God's sovereign, abundant grace. Stephen demonstrates clearly that God initiated the process of calling out a people for his name, and he continued to pour out his grace on these people in spite of their own rebellion. God called Israel. Israel did nothing to earn this calling. And they rebelled. They rebelled. They rebelled. We know what that means. We rebel. But God continued to be gracious to them. Okay? He began by calling Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. 
Stephen refers to God as the God of glory, showing his majesty and separateness from sinful humanity. Abraham was a pagan idolater. He was an idolater, okay, living in a pagan culture with no merit in him for God to appear to him and make a covenant with him. God sovereignly, hope, remember this word, the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly chose Abraham and poured out grace on him. God's sovereignty is further underscored in verse 4 of chapter 7 where Stephen states that God removed Abraham into his removed Abraham into this country. The nation of Israel owed its existence to God's gracious promise to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and to give them the land of Canaan. Furthermore, God's hand was on Joseph. Do we remember Joseph? In spite of the wickedness of his brothers and selling him into slavery, God sovereignly used the famine in Canaan to get Jacob and all his descendants into Egypt where Joseph cared for their needs. If you, don't, if you haven't read that story, read that story. God's sovereignty and grace are seen in the way he protected the fledging nation during the 400 years in Egypt in spite of their trials. When the time of God's promise to Abraham approached, verse 17, he sovereignly raised up Moses. But as Stephen notes, Moses was born at the very time that Pharaoh decreed the death of the Jewish infants in verse 19 through 20. Why, why would God do that? Why? John Calvin explains it was to show that time is most fit for God to work in when there is no hope or counsel to be looked One more time. That time is, is most fit for God to work in when there is no hope or counsel to be looked for at man's hands. Okay? That means this, there's no way we can say man did this. There's no other meaning except God was involved. In his sovereign grace, God protected Moses through Pharaoh's daughter and provided him with an education and all the learning of the Egyptians so that he was a man of power, words, and deeds, we see in verse 22. But in spite of his learning and power, the people of Israel did, at did not at first accept Moses as their deliverer. He had to flee for his life and spend 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. Stephen makes the point that it was the same, this same Moses whom Israel had at first rejected that God sent to deliver the nation. Okay, Stephen is giving them a dissertation here. A powerful dissertation. He's trying to open their eyes, and you're going to see where it goes. You probably already know. It was this same Moses who predicted that God would raise up another prophet after him. Stephen is not too subtly implying that Jesus is that prophet rejected the first time. But in spite of God's sovereign abundant grace, Israel rebelled against God and his servant Moses in the wilderness. They turned back to Egypt in their hearts, verse 39, and worshiped the golden calf. God gave the nation up to their idolatry. Imagine that. God said, you know what? This is what you want? Here, let me let, me let you ponder in the mud a little bit, okay? He gave them up to their idolatry so that later they worshiped the false gods of Canaan. Even so, in his grace, God had given them the tabernacle, 
and later the temple as the place where he met with them. Although, as Stephen reminds them by quoting Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, God is not bound by a man-made dwelling since he made all things. Thus, through, through this, his message, Stephen emphasizes God's sovereign, abundant grace sown to the nation of Israel in spite of their repeated sins. And as we go on, we see that Israel's history, number two, Israel's history reveals their own stubborn, rebellious propensity to reject God's gracious dealing with them. Their history reveals their rebellious nature, their rebellious heart. And I'm sure we can say our history reveals our rebellious hearts as well, does it not? We have already seen this theme of God's grace in previous messages in this series by John and, and, and even uh, Pete. And so I, I don't need to go over it in detail, but note the repeated pattern of the nations rejecting the deliverer from God, whom God had sent. Joseph's brother, the patriarch of the nation, at first, his brothers rather, Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs of the nation, at first wickedly rejected him, but later found him to be their savior from death by starvation. Israel in slavery in Egypt at first rejected Moses as their deliverer, but later it was this very man whom God raised up to be both ruler and deliverer. The parallel with these wicked men to whom Stephen was speaking is obvious. They had rejected the very one whom God has sent as Messiah and Savior. And yet, like Joseph's brother and like Israel under Moses, God was offering them another chance to repent and follow Jesus. How many times did God have to chase you down? I know how many times he had to chase me down. Offering and offering a chance to repent and come to the saving knowledge of his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Thirdly, Israel's history reveals their pattern of limiting worship to a sacred place, the temple, rather than a sacred person, the person who made it all. The Jews in Stephen's day were fiercely loyal to the land, to Jerusalem, and to the temple as the only center of worshiping God. So throughout this message, Stephen repeatedly shows them that God historically had revealed himself to his servants in Gentile territory, apart from the temple. He called Abraham in the land, in the land of Mesopotamia. He did not give Abraham any inheritance in the land, not even a foot ground. Okay? God predicted to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land, but not until they were enslaved and mistreated in a foreign land for 400 years. Also, God revealed himself to Moses in the foreign land of Midian through the burning, up, through the burning bush. That ground was holy because God was there. That's the only reason that ground was holy, because God was there. Also, God was with Moses and the nation in the wilderness outside of the land, and God spoke directly to Moses on Mount Sinai. By calling the law living oracles, Stephen shows that the charge of him speaking against the law was not true. He, re he revered God's law. It was the rebellious nation that, whether they saw it or not, they are the ones that despise God's law. Stephen brings up the tabernacle and the temple, but not, not at great length. 
but his brevity with reference to the temple and by the quotation from Isaiah 7, Isaiah, Stephen is not despising the temple, but he is challenging the mindset that the Jews had towards the temple. They boasted in the temple as if it gave them some special access to God. In spite of their wicked behavior, Stephen is showing them that the main issue is not the place where they worshiped, but rather having their hearts right before the person, the holy creator. The Jews in Jeremiah's day had done the same thing. In Jeremiah 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 to 10, through the prophet, God said, will you still murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered? You got nerves, is basically what God is saying. That you may do all these abominations? They thought that having the temple gave them special privileges with God, no matter how corrupt their behavior. Stephen is indicting them. He's indicting these Jews in this day with the same charge. They thought that worship at the temple gave them a place of special blessing, despite of how they live. They thought that it just gave them an end with God even though their hearts were wicked and far from God. While much more could be said, Stephen's message message reveals these themes. God's sovereign grace is abundantly shown to rebellious sinners such as we. But we must take heed to the danger of hardening our hearts against his grace. Even though Israel had a history of spiritual privilege, unlike any nation on earth, He, she, rejected her Savior and incurred God's judgments. The temple that she boasted in was destroyed in A.D. 70, and Israel was scattered among the nations for 19 centuries. So how can we apply this message to ourselves? First, we should rejoice in and proclaim God's abundant mercy toward hardened sinners. This is at least the third time that the Sanhedrin, which was responsible for crucifying Jesus, had heard the gospel and had the opportunity to repent. They heard Peter preach after they arrested him and John in connection with the healing of the lame man in the temple. They again heard Peter and the apostles offer them repentance and forgiveness of sins after they had been arrested, miraculously freed and rearrested. Now again, they hear Stephen powerfully set forth God's gracious dealings with the nation in spite of their rebellion. While he never mentions the name of Jesus, he refers to him as the righteous one. And his his vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God testified to the counsel again of his resurrection. If God had given these murderers just one chance, if he had just given them one chance to repent after crucifying Jesus, it would have been an abundant mercy. But he gave them three chances, okay? But to give them three opportunities shows his super abundant grace. All of us who have experienced God's salvation know that it was in spite of, it was in spite of, not because of anything 
in us. It was in spite of the things that were in us. Like Abraham, if God had not sovereignly called him by his grace, he would have lived and died as a pagan in a pagan land. Do you rejoice daily, brothers and sisters? Do you take time to rejoice in this abundant grace that God has shown you and me? To be sitting here in Redeemer and acknowledging our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of his amazing grace, we have been saved from destruction. I mean, let it sink in. This is no small matter that God lavished grace upon us. It is not a small matter. Okay, look around you. You will, you, you will realize this is no small matter to be in the fold, so to speak. We should guard against presuming on God's grace by falling into a pattern of sin. We need to. We need to stop presuming on God's grace. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-10, that Israel's history should be a warning to us not to crave evil things as they crave, nor to be idolaters or as they were, nor act immorally, nor to try the Lord, nor to grumble as they did. It is a gross misunderstanding and misapplication of God's grace to presume that we can go on sinning and just keep claiming his grace. That's dangerous ground, brothers and sisters, to think that you can keep on sinning and that God's grace is sufficient. It is, but you're standing on dangerous ground. As Paul puts it in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And Paul does this. May it never be. No, don't do this. Paul shows us the proper response to God's grace. He says that it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, no matter how hard it is. We have the Spirit of God to help us through that. We should guard against going through the outward motions of worship when our hearts are far from God. Israel's, Israel's was God's chosen nation. They had his covenant promises. This pattern of worship given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the tabernacle where his glory was shown, and then the temple in all its splendor. God had dispossessed the pagan nations and given Israel the land. They had received the law as ordained by angels. Yet, in spite of all these privileges, their hearts were far from God. They had a history of killing the prophets that God sent them, culminating in their eventual killing of our Lord and Savior, their Lord and Savior, whether they realize it or not, Jesus Christ. Like Israel, we have had great spiritual privileges, have we not? We live in a nation founded upon biblical principles. We have a history of great spiritual opportunity. We have the Bible in our, in our language in multiple translations. We have freedom to worship without persecution. We can hear the Bible taught on Christian radio through many other resources, and yet it is easy for us to fall into the trap of going through the outward motions 
of Christianity. It's, it, we're, being, we're bombarded, but yet how easy it is to fall into that trap, right? And yet, yeah, but not walking in reality with the living, by not walking in reality with the living God. This building that we meet in is not God's house, okay? Our bodies are the temple of the living God, Scripture tells us. And so we must walk in holiness before the Lord, beginning in our hearts. To offer worship to God when we have not repented of our sins is an offense towards him. To offer worship to God. This is not me telling you this. This is the word of God. To offer a worship to God when we have not repented before him of our sins, it's an offense to God. We should imitate Stephen by being more concerned about bearing witness to the truth than about our own protection. Lastly, as I said earlier, Stephen was defended, defended himself with this sermon. He showed that he reverenced God. He taught highly of Moses, and he did not speak against the temple or the law. But this, his main thrust was not to defend himself. Stephen was not trying to defend himself here. What he was doing was bringing truth to bear on the consciousness of the hypocrites he was talking to, okay? He identifies with them repeatedly throughout the sermon. Eight times, as you read, just pay attention to this. Eight times, he refers to our fathers. He's trying to identify with them, our fathers. But when he gets to the point of the application at the end, he shifts it to your fathers, okay? He isn't speaking with polite generalities that no one could connect with their own behavior. He wants them to feel the guilt of their terrible sin in murdering Jesus Christ. Only when they have been convicted in their hearts will they, will they see their need for God's forgiveness and salvation. Only when the Spirit of God convicts our hearts do we see the need to repent, do we see the need for salvation. So in conclusion, Stephen was steeped in the truths of God's word. He saw the working and ways of God in the, in the Tanakh, that's the Jewish Old Testament, as part of the whole redemptive plan of God, a plan which pointed to Jesus Christ and culminated in him alone. Everything. Peter was, I mean, um, Stephen was trying to let them know everything in the Old Testament, all the scriptures that we have were pointed to this Savior that you murdered. Stephen was a godly man who was able to face opposition courageously and to face death without fear. Why was Stephen so bold? Why was he fearless of death? All evidence points to the fact that he was a man who gave himself to the study of God's word. It's important that we live in God's word. He read, he memorized, he meditated, he studied and taught through and thought through the Tanakh. When the occasion came, Stephen, like I said before, when that occasion came, Stephen just spit it out what God had already put in his heart. How blessed is the man, Scripture tells us, Psalms 1, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight 
is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves does not wither. And whatever he does, whatever he does, he prospers. If we are to be to have life that resembles Stephen's, it must start, brothers and sisters, if you haven't heard anything I said, if we are to have a life of character, we must, and I'm preaching to myself, we must, it must start with us spending time with God. And we do that by being in his word. Pray with me. Father, we want to know you more. We want to love you more. We want to obey you more. We want our lives to be totally abandoned to your will, Lord, because many of us here, we know your word is truth. We know your word is life. And yet, Heavenly Father, we, we struggle. We struggle because we do fail to spend time with you in your word. We struggle because like Peter, who began to sink when he took his eyes off Christ, who had called him to come across the waters, like Peter, Lord, we take our eyes off of you and allow fear and doubt to overcome us as we view our circumstances around us. So, Father, knowing that this is our common weakness, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be filled with faith and power, to be able to, to first proclaim the gospel to our own hearts so that we would be filled with grace to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the unsaved around us. Fill our hearts, O oh Lord. Revive us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.